Well, hello there. Welcome back for another episode of your favorite podcast, Ranching Reboot. I'm your host, Brian Alexander, and this is episode 137. This episode of the podcast is made possible by the support of my awesome patrons on patreon.com slash redhillsrancher and my subscribers on Spotify. If you'd like to help keep the podcast coming, I'd ask that you check out patreon.com slash redhillsrancher or subscribe on Spotify. You can find the links in the show notes or on my link tree, which I'll talk about in just a minute. The listener feedback survey is still up, and you can only get to it by clicking the link in the show notes or by going to redhillsrancher.com slash survey. I'm getting some great stuff, and thanks to everybody that's taken the time to fill it out. I'd really like to know what you think about the podcast and a little bit about you, so head on over to redhillsrancher.com slash survey or just click the link in the show notes. If you're looking for a place to interact with me and other podcast fans, you should check out my Discord server. Social media has been great for everybody, but nearly every platform has made it 10,000 times harder in the last six months for my content to be seen. Active users on Discord are usually the first to know about what's happening and often in real time. In the last few days, we've had some great discussions about the cattle market, what regenerative food means, and we've talked about stockmanship too. So come on over and join the conversation. There's always a link on my link tree, and I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about Discord or aren't sure how to use it, send me an email at redhillsrancher at gmail.com or let me know in the listener survey mentioned earlier. Anybody that knows me knows that I love dogs. Like, I just love all dogs. A few weeks ago, after having a great last day, we said goodbye to our family golden retriever. And I firmly believe that she was with us for several extra years because of the CBD oil that we've been putting in her food. CBD oil, just like my friends at Wild Ass Soap Company, have for sale right now on our website. We used to put a few drops of high-potency CBD oil on our dry food. A great full-spectrum oil is what helped her stay feeling young for years. If you don't want to mess around with oils or dosages, CBD pet treats are also on sale this week at Wild Ass Soap. But wait, there's more. They also have CBD for the humans in your life. If you're having trouble sleeping, I'd recommend their full-spectrum gummies. One at bedtime usually works to help me get right to sleep. Check out all their CBD products and much, much more at wildasssoaps.com slash reboot or click the link in the description. Don't forget to use the code reboot at checkout for an extra discount. That's www.wildasssoaps.com slash reboot and the coupon code is reboot. My guest today is somebody that many of you will know and many will have met. Dallas Mount from Ranch Management Consultants and he's one of the main facilitators for the Ranching for Profit School. Today, we discuss the current challenges in the ranching industry, from weather-related issues to the paradigm of profitability. We delve into the changing landscape of social media, explore the potential of carbon storage contracts, and share personal stories that highlight our passion for the industry. With insights into professional development, soil health, and more, this episode is a must-listen for anybody interested in the future of agriculture. All right, you know the deal. Quick ad, then some music, and we're going to get right to it. See ya. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hey, hey. 
Good morning, Big D. How are you, buddy? <laughs> Good. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. How are things up in Wyoming? Good. Yeah, really good. We've been having a, we had an amazing year. Well, that's good to hear. Let I me mean, make sure I got my right. Um, audio is actually picking up, right? Let's see. Audio settings. There we go. Uh, test speaker, test microphone. Yeah, it's on the headset. Is it sounding good? Yeah, you sound good. Okay. okay. I figured it'd sound good. That's why I already started recording. Okay. <laughs> I I sometimes put my headset on and then I forget to plug it in. So I'm sitting here, you know, with it the cord hanging down. So but uh anyway, yeah, I'm good. No, we just just shipped cattle uh Sunday and uh had the best grass year we've ever had. Um I didn't go on to a few of my leases and just, you know, grazed at home and and uh then the lease we were on on the mountain, we could have had twice as many cattle up there. So so I, I definitely feel that statement. So the year we had down here in the Red Hills, down on my place. So just north of me, it's still dry. Just east of me, it's still dry. There's an area south of me that's kind of okay, but you get farther south and it gets dry. Um, a lot of the guys to the west of me, surprisingly in western Kansas, have gotten adequate rain this year, which is blows my mind. Wow. Yeah. I, I went, I went back to Lakin yeah. for the bottom line conference. I was at a little over a month ago and they were telling me that they had, that they'd had 24 inches of rain since the first of May. Holy smokes. 24 yeah. inches since the first of May. That's yeah. incredible for that area. <laughs> yeah. It, it blew my mind. Like the irrigation ditch was running at Lake and I've never seen that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Very similar yeah. to you. Uh, I just, I couldn't, there was no way I could use all the grass that I grew this year. I mean, cause we didn't get rain until the first of June and I made my stocking decisions, you know, all the way back in, I kicked the can down the road as long as I could. Um, and right. I didn't really make stocking decisions until kind of like the end of March just cause of how dry yeah. it was. And I came in real, real yeah. light. And now that, it, now that we've got some rain, it's like, what do I do with all this grass? So I'm probably going to light it yeah. on fire, but we can get into that later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me get everything closer to my computer. So I'm not having any sounds pop through here. Let's see. There we go. Okay. All right. I think I'm ready. You're we've already been going for a while. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me put my pants on. Okay. Hold on. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. <sighs> oh goodness. So did you guys have a lot of rain? Like, was it dry coming into the growing season and you kind of made some decisions to come, come light like I did? Yeah, no, we started getting moisture, um, you know, April. Um, so about, about the time when we need it. Uh, and then it just, it, our, our total precip wasn't all that high. It was the timing was just perfect. Every time it started to dry out, it felt like we got into the rain, which, which is very unusual for us. Normally we have a, a hot dry season, especially during July and August where, you know, we just plan to dry up and, and everything cure out. And, uh, especially up on the mountain this year, that just didn't happen. We just kept getting rain. So yeah, it was, it was incredible to get cattle in this year was a challenge. We had to, uh, we had trucks on the way road. We thought the road had finally dried out enough to get the trucks in. And, uh, 
we were up there doing a little fencing project and here came a thunderstorm and roads were completely unpassable again. So we had to load the trucks 10 miles from the pasture and, uh, and walk the cattle in. So it uh, created, created a bit more work, but Hey, we'll, we'll take it. <laughs> I bet that was a, I bet that was fun. I, we've yeah. had some challenges having to move cattle around, you know, where they're, where the truck's going to land because of rain. Yeah. yeah. But 10 miles, um, we've never had to do 10 miles. Sometimes it's like, well, we'll just go to the neighbors over here. We'll bring them three miles across from the different direction. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was all right. The problem was we had to keep the cattle in a corral overnight. Cause I, w- I unloaded them in a neighbor's and he had cattle around there. So we didn't have anywhere we could dump them out because he had cattle and all those deals. And, and so they sat there in pens with mud up to their knees all night after an eight hour truck ride. And, and then we showed up at sunlight the next morning and started walking them. And, you know, they went the first four or five miles good. And then they just kind of gave out. Right. So the last, the last battle, but, uh, but yeah, we got, got her done and, uh, yeah. we'll take it. If that's the worst thing that happens is too much rain, you know, <laughs> it's hard to complain about too much rain. <laughs> I don't even, about too much rain. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever complain about fighting the mud. I just yeah. don't like doing it. Did you have any health wrecks from, from them standing in mud and having? Yeah, we, not, I wouldn't say wrecks. Um, we we had some more. We had more problems than we typically would. Uh, but uh, yeah, after you know, two weeks afterward, we were pretty well through it, and and they were they were off and going. So, yeah, well, good deal. Yeah. So just before we got going, I had to look and see when the when the last time was that we talked, and it was, it kind of surprised me. And we need to do this more often, but it's over two years it was august of 2021 wow. episode 26 wow, wow. dang then, a lot's a lot's gone on since then uh. yeah i think uh this will be 136 or 137 wow wow yeah. man good for you that's a that's a good run man yeah doing this podcast has been really good for me dallas it's been good. it's it's forced me to do things on a schedule and do things regularly and and it, yeah. it makes me continue to push my comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, there's times where it's like, I just don't want to do this today, but I've got yeah. somebody waiting on me. I've got fans waiting for a show next week. And it's like, all right, we're just, we're just going to sit down and do this, even though it makes me a little uncomfortable. So it's, I'm using yeah. it as, I'm trying to use it as a tool for personal growth. I don't know if it's working or not, but we're trying yeah. that. Good. Good. Well, outstanding. Well, I know you're, you're doing some good for folks. I was in, uh, northern montana uh, a few weeks ago right up on the border there and uh somebody mentioned your podcast and and so we were kind of doing a resource sharing thing and and uh guy said ranching reboot he said i listen to it all the time so awesome so it's fun to, fun to see your your how how far your your reach gets so. well i remember three years ago or was all, it was almost four years ago it was four years ago when i was down in abilene that was four years ago dallas Man. <laughs> yeah, time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I was going through when I was going through ranching for profit and EL, it was all working cows. And it was like, yeah, working cows podcast. And that was the only one and everybody listened to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need to I need to get with Clay. I haven't spoke to him lately and see how he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing good. I've I listened to the one you and Clay and Jared all did together. That was that was fun to hear you guys. So Maybe it was a couple. I think you might have done a few segments out of that, but yeah, it was. They might have done a few segments out of it. I released the whole thing as one block. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That was a lot of fun to do. 
it right. took, gosh, I think it took three months to get all wow. of our schedules together. Wow. And to get us all uh, in one place at one time. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, those guys with those town jobs, man, they, you know, their schedules are funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think I might've told you this. So I've been teaching ranching for profit. I don't know, maybe 10, 10 years now or somewhere in there. It probably longer. It, um, from where the attendees are now in terms of their knowledge base and the level that they're coming to, it's a huge improvement from where we were uh, probably even six years ago. And, and I really credit that with the podcasts. I, I think the, you know, people are the, the people that are knowledge seekers are, are listening to podcasts and there's probably some other stuff that they're getting on that. But, but I really think podcasts are the, are the biggest piece moving the needle in terms of getting, uh, you know, professional improvement out there in front of folks who work the land. Cause it's an, e it's an easy way to consume the media, right? You can just put your earbuds in, you can throw it through your Bluetooth on your pickup. Right. And, and while you're out there doing your stuff, you can, in fact, I got a two hour drive to go get two pair that we left up on the mountain and I've already got my podcast downloaded for the day. Right. I'm, you know, I'm going to do two hours up there, two hours back. So I'm going to get four hours of podcast today while I go pick up those two pair. Right on. I, and, you know, I do the same thing. Yeah. Like if I'm traveling to a expo conference or I've got a long road trip, I always get something queued up and yeah. I've got my, my podcast list thing. I can kind of almost get through it a normal week. So when I go on a long trip, I like to queue up like a book because I don't always get a chance to sit. Because when I consume yeah. an audio book, I like to, I like to sit down and consume it. Like I want to listen to yeah. it from as much as I can in one chunk, kind of like, when I read a book, like I don't like to sit down and read a book for 20 minutes. If I yeah. want to sit down and read a book, I'm going to sit down and read the whole damn book. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's kind of how I am. So it's, it's a great way for me to consume, consume content as well. Cause yeah. I mean, you can do something else while you're doing it. It's like, Oh, what what he just say? Let me run that back. I even know yeah. some crazy people that listen to podcasts at like two X. I can't. I yeah, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. But yeah, but anyway, I was, uh, I just really appreciate the, you know, the efforts you and the others have done to, to really get information out in front of people. I, I think, I think it's making a huge difference in, in the world of ag. So. Well, the question is, is just how to get more people to discover podcasts that, that could be seeking knowledge. Like that, that's one of the questions I always go back to is like, how do I get better discovery on a podcast so people so i can put it in front of people they can listen a little bit decide if they like it and want to stick around yeah that that's a huge challenge and i think it's gotten so much harder since the first of the year and let me explain that so interest rates went up which i'm sure that subject will come up more than once in this conversation interest rates went up money's no longer free. So all of these tech companies, Instagram, Facebook, well, I guess they're the same. So Facebook, TikTok, X, whatever platform you're on, since the first of the year, they've been trying to figure out how to make money and raise revenue. I noticed that it was around like the third or fourth week of January this year. I'd switch over to my Red Hills Rancher page on Facebook to scroll through that feed. And it would literally be 70 to 80 percent advertisements and sponsored posts and boosted posts mm. and then i went back over to my personal page and i really started paying attention in the feed and it was at least it was half 
sponsored or promoted posts. So I'm like, okay, my, and my views on Facebook, like took a nosedive around that same period views on Instagram, took a nosedive and I'll kind of try to wrap this up, but all these companies figured out they've got to make money because money's not free. The venture capital is just not flowing in and they're trying to monetize their user base and trying to figure out different ways they can do that. Well, that also means that if you're trying to drive traffic away from their platform, they're not going to let you do that. That means if you have like, if you're trying to, even if you're just trying to sell something through a link, no, all these platforms want you to use their platform and stay on it use the facebook shop or the instagram shop or the TikTok shop or whatever that's great if you're selling freaking shoes right you know if you're trying to sell livestock salt or you know uh, uh, fence posts it's a little bit more difficult to do that um another change and this is this is in the TikTok user agreement specifically and this was just a couple of weeks ago you can't sell homemade products now on that platform. So, and I, maybe it was a crackdown that came from people like going and buying Skittles and putting them in a freeze dryer and then reselling them for 10 bucks a bag. Okay. Okay. I mean, if you're doing that and you've got a good client base, fine. <laughs> That's fine. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, but that also put a clamp down on everybody, every small farmer or rancher that was using TikTok help sell eggs and chicken and produce hmm. there's a few of them that were selling beef too that's all going away on all these platforms hmm. so i it was back in february march i tried to boost some posts like actually pay to get people to see my stuff and it would cost me about 15 dollars on a post in March to get the same reach that I got in November. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. So they're so, just changing, changing the way they do business and it's, it's going to affect a lot of the smaller guys and the, and the people that are doing the home, the home stuff. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And I don't know if anybody else out there in podcast land has noticed that difference, but I sure did. And, you know, I, I spoke, Several of the guys on my Discord server, we've had several conversations about it. Like, yeah, I don't see this stuff anymore. If I want to go see it, I've got to go there. Yeah. So I think all the social media companies are getting a little bit weird about their algorithms. And, you know, we're in business to make money, right? Yeah. And these tech companies get to go for so long without turning a profit because they're like, oh, we've got all these users. We've got all these users. We've got all these users. Well, now we've got all these huge users on these platforms and nobody knows how to turn nobody and they're struggling on how to monetize all the users. Right. Huh. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Different world from what I pay attention to. So <laughs> interesting. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wish I didn't have to pay attention to things like that, but yeah. you know, if you're trying to have a presence on social media and at least not, be pushed off to the fringes and maintain what you got or try to grow your audience you've got to know something about it yeah yeah so so what's new at ranch management consultants oh boy uh yeah boy since we haven't talked in two years a lot is new um it's so we're just entering our is it my fourth or fifth year running this thing i think i think it's 
we just hit year four um, from since since we bought the company from Dave. Uh, the company itself is getting ready to turn forty, uh, so that's pretty exciting. Um, so yeah, we're we're coming up on our fortieth year, and um, it uh, last year we put over five hundred people through Ranching for Profit. And, and that's the highest in the history of the company. Uh, so it's been exciting to grow things and to see the demand uh, continue to grow. Uh, right now, where we're sitting, it's early October, and we've got more enrollments for our upcoming school season than we've ever had this time of year. Uh, so so things, are, things are trotting along uh, in, a, in a strong way. Um, you know, we, as a company, we sit back and we, and we're, we're grateful for that. And, and then we reflect how much of this is because of our doing and how much of this is just, you know, because of the state of the industry and, and those kind of things. And we don't want to spend too much time patting ourselves on the back, right. Thinking how great we are when, when some of it might just be happening uh, around us. Right. Um, but I really think the, we, we've grown our, our teaching group, uh, quite a bit. And uh, to me, that's really exciting um, that we've got, uh, you know, a, a really strong group of instructors uh, that are out there teaching now. Uh, Dave Pratt and I are going to uh, do some classes together this year. So it's, it's cool to still have him on the delivery team and, and him involved. Uh, John Locke is just doing amazing. Uh, the reviews for the classes that he, that he teaches are just, you know, super a lot of praise for him and and what what he's doing with the school uh shannon sims and melinda sims and jordan Steele uh, are are all on our teaching team and and doing doing fabulous stuff so uh it's been really neat to have uh more ranchers that are full-time ranchers on our instructor team and i really think that adds to the to the caliber of the um, conversations you know that they're that they're bringing out, you know, when they're, when they're living it every day, um, you know, you, you you get a different conversation than somebody who uh, sits and reads a book about it every day. Right. You know, so, uh, so I'm, I'm pretty excited uh, that we've, that we've grown our instructor team in that way and, and the work that they're doing. One, one of the things we really look for in, in instructors and we really try to cultivate among our team and, and we all do this with each other. is just keeping ourselves humble, you know, and, and reminding that, Hey, guys, we don't know very much. Right. And, and we're just learning this along with everybody else. And, and we really lean on the curriculum that's been developed uh, before us and, and just say, you know, look, look at these principles and, and our job is to communicate these principles with folks and then challenge them as to how they apply these principles in, in their scenario. Right. What, one of the interesting things is when people come to these kind of classes, they've been conditioned to look for silver bullets, right? You, everybody walks in the room saying, well, just tell me what to do. Right. And, and then I'm going to be skeptical of what you tell me, right. I'm going to challenge it and all this stuff. Well, I, I think they learned that's not what we do at ranching profit, right? We don't, we don't say, well, Brian, you should run this kind of cow and calf here and, you know, do this and all your problems will be solved. Your wife will like you and your dog will, you know, lick you and all this stuff. Right. It, Cause it doesn't work that way. I mean, it's, if ranching were that simple, um, right. Plus it wouldn't be any fun if it worked that way. <laughs> so, so we try to rely on those principles and, uh, and, and teach those principles that we found to be true in all environments uh, across all settings and, and then just challenge the participants. Okay. Here's the principle now. Now, how are you going to apply it? And to me, that's, that's really fun. Intellectually fun. I I don't know how to put this, but some of my favorite moments have been one of my favorite moments was when I took it with uh, Dave Pratt back in 06. 
And somebody asked this long convoluted question about their cows. And Dave just stood there and he patiently listened, patiently listened. And he just, and when the guy was finished, he just looked at him and said, are you sure you should own cows? <laughs> and it's kind of, it's sometimes it's kind of like a gut punch and maybe that's needed. It's like, yeah you're asking the wrong questions. And I think that's a lot what ranching for profit missed about 10 of those already. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that ranching for profit teaches you. It teaches you to ask better questions or teaches you to ask different questions and gives you, gives you a paradigm. So you can ask different questions. Yeah. 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 I, I appreciate that. I, Somebody said one time, it's not, it's not the answer. That's the most important thing. It's the question that we're asking. That's the most important thing. Right. And that, as I think is, as I've matured, I've learned that to be more and more true. Right. You know, the answers are boring. Answers are, you know, easy, but, but questions that's, that's interesting. Right. Or, you know, what, what do you like, or should you be running cows? Right. What a great question. <laughs> yeah. So, mm. so, one of the things that's been on my radar for a while, um, and I've talked about this a little bit in the last few episodes on the podcast, is I've kind of come to the realization that we're a nation of tenant farmers and ranchers, and that owner-operators are becoming a very rare breed. I guess before I, before I go on, can you substantiate that? Is that? Do you feel that's the trend that we're going towards from what you're seeing? Because you see, I mean, you saw 500 people come through last year. Hopefully that was like 250, at least 250 different ranches. And you probably have a good idea of what everybody's uh, situation is like, whether they're an owner operator or a tenant or they're on the ownership side. What can you speak? Can you speak anything to that over your history of involvement with with the program about what you're yeah. seeing changing? Yeah, yeah, I can. Um, so I, I would say it's still the people coming through our school are the majority of them are owner operators. Um, I do see a trend towards more um, people that are that are be owning the livestock business and then leasing most of the land that they operate on. Um, so I, I think that trend is continuing. And, and then also we're seeing more people who are uh, professional managers for, um, you know, often wealthy absentee owners uh, and absentee is not always the right word, but oftentimes the owners are less involved in the, in the operating part of the business and and more so just in the uh, land holding piece of the business. And, uh, and I think that trend will continue. I mean, I think if we jumped forward 20 and 30 years, um, you know, I think we're going to have more and more people that are, um, owning the real estate to a smaller degree that that they're operating on i don't really know that that that's a bad thing um i think it's a reality of of land prices and real estate markets um you know and i i think that that's one of the things we explore in the school is that is that being in the ag operating business is a very different business decision from being in the land holding investment and it's more accurately called an investment than it is a business um but uh, you know and, and i think sometimes we as farmers and ranchers get those two things too jumbled up right we think okay i'm going to be a rancher so i need to go out and buy a ranch well actually going out and buying a ranch might be the last thing you need to do if you want to be a rancher right that could really screw you up to to jump into a significant real estate investment when you don't have capital Right. Um, so I, I, I think that's a, 
that's probably going to be a reality as we move forward. I think what I see is the the people, especially when we look at the um, the the wealthy landowners that are hiring professional management, I think many times uh, it's coming with a higher degree of professionalism than owner operators. Right. I, I think sometimes those people that are now running these and I'm generally thinking about a ranch of scale. Right. So something that's probably in excess of 500 cows um, or that or similar capacity, uh, you know, the people that are being hired to run these um, oftentimes are are pretty skilled ranch operators. Right. And they're they're looking for improved ways of grazing. Uh, they're challenging status quo in terms of, you know, how do we run this ranch? Where if if you compare that to a ranch that's being run by a fifth generation, um, oftentimes there comes a degree of laziness with that, right? We we don't have to pay, uh, you know, cover our bills um, because, or I shouldn't say cover our bills. We don't have to make an economic profit, right? We can choose to operate this thing at just just a cash flow positive and just squeak by. Uh, and makes people placate, right? So would some of those operations like you were just talking about, like that are, quote, content to break even, I think I, I see some ranches that look like they're spending their future equity, like they've already borrowed their future equity and they've already spent it just to keep the ranch in operation over the last couple of years. Have you seen that? I, I see a lot. I don't, I'm not sure I would uh, use the same words you did of spending their future equity. I see a lot of ranches that are starting to dig themselves into a hole um, instead of choosing to change. Yeah. So I, I guess it is kind of spending the future equity in a way. It's the same thing, right? Here, we're going to we're gonna choose to just say, well, the only reason we didn't make money is uh, drought and markets. So if we just put our heads down and, and keep doing the same thing, eventually drought will quit markets will come around uh, that's a that's a very victim mentality right to to say well the only reason my ranch didn't work is because it didn't rain and the markets moved against me right I, you know okay so you you brought it up it didn't rain in a large part of the country and a large part of the country still not ideal on rain without like getting specific on numbers because the cattle market is just going to the freaking moon right now like it is right. just a ridiculous rocket ship ride i'm looking at what prices everything's bringing i'm looking at what horn cattle are bringing and i'm looking at mine going you guys are gonna be awful expensive to feed this winter i mean al alfalfa is still i haven't gotten a quote on it just you know price i'm hearing on the street is 220 to 250 a ton for alfalfa wow. uh wow. Cake, 20% cake is going to be north of 350 this year, I feel like, a ton. Things are going to be real expensive to feed this winter. Okay, great. If we're looking at, you know, $3.20 calves that some people think they could be on their way to $4. Wally Olson thinks they could be on their way to $4. He thinks we could see four or $5,000 pairs by the time this thing is done. I think there's going to be guys that will have Fifty nine hundred bucks in a five thousand dollar pair, yeah, yeah. So it it was it was right at a year ago on um, I think it was on TikTok. I was coming home from work one day, and I saw a neighbor feeding hay, and it was like the beginning of August. Hmm. So I came home and I came down here to my whiteboard, and my my good old flip chart <laughs> that everybody should have. At least, yep, man. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I came down here to my flip chart and I got my legal pad out and I'm like, okay, 
how many days is it back to green grass? How many days is it back to green grass? And what's that going to cost if you're feeding from now till green grass? And I started running through those numbers and I was kind of like, okay, this is not great. Well, what does it look like if the feed cost actually doubles? And and that's kind of actually close to where it got to last year. And you, know, it, you can't spend three or four dollars per day feeding a cow in a lot. It, that does. I don't think that there's a scenario that five dollars a day carrying cost for 180 days makes money. Yeah, I I, I just don't see it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't see many of those that that I like either. When they start rolling the feed out to them at those kind of levels, and and you know, with the idea that well, prices are going up, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna be around here to participate when cattle reach whatever your magic number is, right? Four dollars calves, you know, four thousand dollar bread cows, whatever that thing is. Um, I, I think we need to go back to the back to the principles on this, right? And and so when you look at it from from a principle standpoint. Would you go out? Okay, so so let's let's take your scenario right now. It's um, let's say a guy sitting on a bunch of black bread cows, right? And I don't know what what they're bringing in your neighborhood, but let's say they're twenty eight hundred dollars, right? Somewhere in there, that twenty five hundred dollars might be a more conservative number. Um, so would you go out and take if you didn't have those cows, right? If you had the money in the bank and you were looking outside at, at what's going on in the ranch, right? So you just woke up today and you say, okay, I'm going to start ranching. Would you go to the sale barn and buy $2,500 cows to put them on your ranch when you're out of grass, right? And I can't come up with an argument that would that would say, yes, that's what I should do. I should be going to the sale barn today, buying $2,500 cows to turn them out on this ranch when I've used all my grazable feed for the year. And everything to get me till spring, I'm going to have to roll out to them from a feed truck or a, a bale. Uh, to me, that just, I, I don't know how you can make that play. The The only way you can you can argue yourself into that is is betting on the comp, right? I think prices are going up and I'm, well, if, if you've got market wisdom, why don't you just sit home and play the stock market, right? Or play the, you know, those things that if you, if you know what things are going to do, you don't need to be in the ranching business to make millions. Just, just do that from your computer. Right. So I, I think we start teasing ourselves when we start saying, well, I've got this market wisdom and things are going up. It's a great way to justify an emotional attachment to animals. You should have sold a month ago is, is what it is. Um, but I don't think there's any real, there's not a real business argument to be made for, for making those kind of decisions. Uh, you mentioned Wally, uh, and, and, you know, the Bud Williams guys teach the three inventories, grass, money, and, and, and livestock. Right. And, uh, my, uh, anytime we're going into a drought or you're in drought, it's always a position of power to have money and to have feed, to have grass, right. Grass in the pasture when nobody else does and money in the bank when everybody else is out of it, right? Now you're at a position of power when, when you're in drought. A position of weakness in drought is to be broke and to be out of feed, right? And and that that's, uh, to me, uh, you can hang your hat on that. So, um, you know, the emotional attachment to animals keeps ranchers from making a lot of really good decisions when we're in periods of drought. And, you know, we, we hang on to them far too long and, 
you know, we tell ourselves stories about how great our beasts are and how they're irreplaceable, right? It's a, as I travel around and talk to ranchers all over the country, there's three things that, that I find that are in common. Uh, num- number one is you can't get anybody to work in this area, right? Well, people want to work. They just, okay. so, and number two is you can't get any leases in my area. Well, somebody just leased a ranch right down the road from you. It, it wasn't you. So people are getting leases, just you're not getting leases, right? And then number three is my animals are special and they're irreplaceable, right? Well, I'm sorry, but a bunch of cows yours sold last week and they brought market price, right? So I think all those things are, are untruths. Um, it's, it's just we need to, need to rethink them and challenge them. Paradigm. It's just. Their paradigm doesn't allow them to see opportunities or their paradigm like locks them into these are the cows that I have and these are the cows that I'm going to have. And, you know, this is this is the breed that I'm going to worship or or whatever. And, you know, what what are we here to do? Why are we here? Why are we in this business? And you you could probably you've 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 read enough mission and vision statements from people coming through the school. How many different reasons are there why people are doing this? Why people want a ranch? There's as many reasons as there are people. Yeah. And yeah, I I don't know where I was going with that one. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it is a fair thing. You know, if if somebody's not ranching for the point of, of profitability, right? If, if their ranching is, Hey, the reason I ranch is I want to have a herd of, you pick the color cows that I've developed on this ranch that are, you know, fourth generation that, that stay here all the time. Well, knock yourself out. Right. But, but, but that kind of position can be um, a paradox to profitability oftentimes. Right. So um, if you, if you can afford to do that, who am I to say you shouldn't do that? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a great thing to do is to be in a position where you can afford to do what you want. Right. Um, But I often, I talk to a lot of people who say, I want to make this thing profitable. I want to make it cash flow. I want to build a business that attracts the next generation. And I want to do it by not ever changing anything and doing it the way we've done it for the last hundred years. Right. Those things can be a, can be a real, real challenge to put in the same box. Okay. Well, let's take it this way. Do we, do we in agriculture as ranchers, do we start from the wrong end and say, I want to have a ranch. I want to be a rancher. I want to have cows and not think about the whole life cycle of that animal, of the, of that production. Okay. What part of that, what part of that really interests me? Just having the cows going out, looking at them, moving them every day. Is it, is it tweaking the long-term genetics for a long-term goal? Is it tracking the data on how different, excuse me, on how different breed groups or sire groups do on the forage is it measuring the forage i mean what's your business really at okay and then how do we monetize that it's not okay i've got i've got these charlays that i've had since i was a kid and i've been showing them i've got like 35 of them on 150 acre postage stamp just outside of dallas texas like I'm, i'm making all this up i don't actually know this person right and i've got a town job but now i want it to be profitable like, well, well, guy, you've got too many cows on not enough land. That's not a business. That's a hobby. So maybe there's some agricultural oper- 
quote, agricultural operations that are never going to scale past a hobby or that that's all they're going to be because there's just not a business. There's not a business to be built out of the bones of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I really think that's fine. If that's what somebody says, Hey, this is what I want to do. And it, it's something I enjoy and I don't expect it to produce business outcomes. The the thing I have to think you have to realize on that is at some point people are going to be tired of subsidizing your hobby. Right. It, and, and that's fine if you want to do it while you're around, but to expect someone else to want to follow you and continue this thing on. I think that's kind of an, that's an unreasonable expectation because if, if things are not profitable, if they're not fun, if they're not scratching those itches, um, you know, then, then why do we do them? Um, especially when they take large sums of capital to do. Um, so, so yeah, but who, who am I to say you shouldn't do it that way? I mean, knock yourself out if you can afford to do it. <laughs> I, I love that quote that you just said. I had to write it down. People are <laughs> going to get tired of subsidizing your hobby. <laughs> And while I was writing that down, I'm thinking of corn and soybean farmers. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's just what popped into my head. Just so, yeah. At what point? At what point does the American public get tired of subsidizing? You know, a lot of people's farming habits, soil yeah. destructive farming habits. At what time do they get tired of that subsidizing that hobby? Yeah, that, that's that's probably a whole different conversation. Anyway. <laughs> Probably is, but yeah, there's, there's certainly some similarities to it. And that, and that kind of brings me to, does it bring me to a place, but that's where we're going to go anyway. Loss of land due to out of state hunters, people buying property for recreation, taking it out of production for whatever reason. I mean, maybe not just pick on deer hunters, but there's a lot of land being taken out of production. And some of the folks that I've talked to, well, it was Walker a couple of weeks ago up there in um, up by Bozeman, Montana. Okay, so there's big ranches being sold. And sometimes they're being partitioned up. Like, you know, maybe this little piece that's next to a road or along a creek, they're going to take that and they're going to break that into 10-acre ranchettes. And they're going to sell that off. And then they're going to sell, you know, the big chunks of grass off to somebody else. The places where people want to build houses are typically on where we can grow some of the best grass, right? Because where it's flat and there's good soil and there's water, that's where people want to go live. So some of the some of the best ground that we have, some of the best grass that we have is getting taken over to make house farms. Right. You know, you've known me for years. You've heard me talk about cedar trees and invasive brush and how fast that that we're losing the grasslands of the Great Plains to invasive brush. Okay. Oklahoma, I think their current rate of loss of, of grassland and pasture land to how to uh, not houses to trees is about 800 acres a year or maybe a day. Texas is losing double the area that Oklahoma is to trees and at the same time losing roughly the same amount to houses. So if they're losing like 2,000 acres a day combined to brush and to houses in Texas. Okay, granted, we're growing mesquite scrub in some of the desert, but we're losing product. We're losing a lot of productive land. And we've seen, I think I'm seeing that trend increase, not necessarily where I'm at, but more up towards where you're at and, and up into Montana and Idaho. 
popularity of Yellowstone, COVID, a lot of people have way overvalued stuff on the coast and they sell it to come here to buy undervalued stuff, which, you know, I guess if you listen to Wally and Doug Ferguson, that's just good sell by marketing. But it also raises everybody's tax base out in the rural rural land, raises the tax base of the of the cattle raisers, of the chicken raisers, you know, the people that have pigs in their backyard, raises all of our taxes. Makes the cost of living go up. But the price of meat's not really tracking with the price with the increase of cost of living. So we're getting squeezed out of some of the prime land. The new the land that is available is extremely expensive. Like that's it, a huge barrier to entry for almost anybody wanting to get into agriculture is just trying to afford the land. Like you said, maybe a strategy is leasing it. Um, it's it's just very concerning to me the amount of acres that are being taken out of production for houses, for ranchettes, for you know the horse farm that somebody wanted to have since they were a little girl. Whatever, that's fine. At some point, we've all got to eat guys and it's got to be affordable it's it's, it's got to be affordable and if land price keeps going up our fuel price keeps going up labor price keeps going up how do we keep food affordable we either have to keep donating a lot of labor which you know some of us have been doing or we've got to figure out how to make that food more affordable which hopefully doesn't lead to a subsidy. I mean, if the whole food system is subsidized in this country, that means it's all fake. I mean, that means the economy is entirely fake. If every food producer is subsidized and every food consumer is eating subsidized food, the entire economy to me would look fake. So, so as, as I was listening to you there, I think my mind the whole time was going opportunity, 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 right? And and I can understand frustration, and I I feel that way oftentimes too. Um, we've got a piece of ground where I was just looking at the uh, taxes on it, and uh, taxes have gone up I think five hundred percent in the last few years on that on that piece of ground. Yeah, it's just just insane. Um, and you know, it it's all those things that you just mentioned, right? Um, and so I, I get ticked off with that kind of stuff too, but, but if you step back and look at those things and everything, all those things that are happening, there's, there's opportunities for the people who are willing to seize them. Right. So, I mean, we've got quite a few, uh, clients who are managing small parcels of people who don't know how to manage land, right. They, they want to show up and enjoy it. Right. So understanding what what that landowner wants, why do they own this land? What kind of things, what kind of itch are you willing to scratch? And then how can I meet those needs for you and and take that piece of land on and start to build my my business, you know, with all these all these pieces of land? And maybe it's free leases, maybe it's cheap leases where you're offsetting them with services. Right. And then if you are selling product, hey, maybe you can sell back to these folks. Right. Maybe they're their potential customers. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm a capitalist. I mean, I look at these things as, Hey, these are, these are market forces and yeah, real estate's going up. Um, I mean, for a lot of people, a lot of people in the ranching world, great. You know, now all of a sudden you were a, a millionaire. Now you're a multimillionaire. Right. But if you're looking to start from scratch, boy, that, that makes getting into the land investment, uh, a pretty, a pretty high, 
high bar to meet, but there's other people that are willing to park their capital there uh, and let you manage it. If you can just be the, you know, that's meeting those needs. So, um, you know, and I, I think as I look at across this thing, maybe it's time for people who are crappy business leaders to go out of business. You know, as I, I look at a lot of people that are running these agricultural operations and, and you look at the caliber or lack thereof of business leadership, um, maybe it's time to, to let capitalistic market forces take place and, and push that person out of business so that somebody who's actually on their game can, can take their place. And, you know, uh, I, I don't think there's any chance of, of running out of food in the anytime soon. I mean, you know, you understand this, Brian, I know from the way you graze, but you know, if, if actually farms and ranches were managed well to produce the food they could actually produce, I mean, think of all the food we could grow on, on these places, right. Without, without having to put all this stuff on them, you know, just, so I think there's huge opportunities to make our farms and ranches um, build soil health, right? Capture those 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 things that are going on there, and and help make them more more productive, producing healthier food. Um, so I don't know. I guess I'm maybe I'm a little uh, cynical, but I think there's opportunities there for people that are that are wanting it. Yeah. Well, I think you're kind of the opposite of cynical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Optimistic there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know it, everything you said that that's that's perfectly fair and it's probably easier for me to see the negative side of it just because of who i am and how my brain's wired than it is to try to than it is seeing seeing an upside and maybe that's because of my position you know i i am a landowner and i'm watching my taxes just go up and up and up and up i'm watching the price of pickups go up i'm watching fuel i'm watching i mean everything every line item on the expense report is just way higher than it was last year and i feel like i'm not doing anything to spend any money it's just cost of everything's going up so i'm being creative i'm trying to find other revenue streams and other ways to other ways to try to you know Let's see, capitalize, concessionize on the yeah. land. And I've got a I've got a deal. I'll have to tell you about this offline. I got a deal that I'm working on, gonna try to put together over this winter. That's that's you'll like it. You'll like Sweet. it. Cool. <laughs> um one and one of the things uh, that I've done is the carver contract. Mm-hmm. And this isn't like the sales pitch, the advertisement was at the beginning of the episode. Where are you with uh, the, these carbon storage companies and carbon storage contracts? Let me preface that with, ha, are you familiar with any of the programs? Have you seen any of the any of the prospective contracts that they offer? And what are your thoughts about soil carbon sequestration contracts? Yeah, um, I've, I've been watching. Uh, I've been paying attention. We've been... Uh, we've been approached several times by several of the carbon companies that kind of want to link arms with us and and kind of get access to our uh, our client base. Uh, I've been pretty cautious on on doing that, um, and and then we've we've advised a few of the different companies on you know grazing and and ways to measure um, what does good grazing look like and how do we how do we put that on the ground. Um, I I think this it's going to come. I think it's going to be a a 
big piece here in the next couple decades uh, and, and probably, you know, for centuries beyond uh, that, that's going to affect ag, ag producers. And I think we need to be paying attention to it. It feels like the wild, wild west out there, right? Everybody and their brothers got a carbon deal that they're, that they're offering you, you know, in the back of the cafe, it, it feels like. Um, and, and some of these are going to be highly successful and some of these are going to, you know, implode a month from now. Right. And, and so I think I'd just be careful who I was working with and, and, you know, the, oftentimes the first guy through the gate takes a lot of the bullets. Right. But we've been, we've been going long enough now that I, I think those first few guys have probably taken their bullets. And, and I think there's people, some people that are going to make, uh, you know, some, some nice revenue on these things. They're our Australian uh, sister company and um, RCS is, is their name, Resource Consulting Service. So they also teach grazing for profit. They have an executive link program, right? We've, we, we don't have any financial relationship with them, but, but we keep pretty close communication. Um, they're, they've been ahead of this thing uh, by a couple few decades of, of where we're at. Uh, they've got company that that look at this that are researching it that are helping connect people with with legitimate things and and i've seen some things coming out of there that are really impressive and and um very solid from uh from a scientific standpoint and uh my my counterpart over there um he made the statement he said these businesses that we have that are that are well documented with their carbon and are well along the track he said they're gross receipts from carbon are exceeding their gross receipts from agricultural production on, on their ranches. And, and these are large scale ranches, right? So um, that to me is like, wow, man, there's, there's some action here and we, we better be paying attention to it. Right. Um, so I don't really know. I don't, I don't have a recommended of saying that you got to do this. You got to do that. I, I do have some things that I'm that I'm pa- that I'm curious about, and and maybe are, are causing me pause. And and one of those is we we don't want to incentivize land degradation, right? So so if you're if you're saying I'm going to measure how much carbon I'm putting in the ground on this, then probably the smartest way to do it would be to get out there and just completely degrade your ranch, have them come in do a baseline assessment. Right. And then and then start and go. So I, I think we want to be really careful about so we're not we're not creating incentives for degradation from from the beginning. Right. On these things, because um, and then I think the other piece of that is we I think we I'd love to see these carbon things structured to reward the operator, n- not the the land, the landowner. Right. I mean, a, a piece of ground, at least now, is is it let's say in my country, uh, uh, an acre of ground is worth a thousand bucks. It's worth a thousand bucks, whether it's degraded to hell or, or whether it's had good, good management on it for 20 years. Right. Um, so from a land ownership perspective, from that land investment perspective, um, you know, I, I'd like to see the carbon part fall on the operator, the, the benefits of the carbon contracts fall on the operator, because otherwise what's going to happen is they're just immediately going to be worked into land rental rates. Right. If if your land owner is is picking up whatever the number is, thirty, fifty dollars an acre for their carbon contract, right? Then and and or or they're passing that to the operator, but they know it's coming to them, they're immediately just gonna work that into the into the lease rates. And all of a sudden, instead of paying for, you know, this for an acre ground, we're gonna pay that plus plus the carbon contract, right? Because everybody knows you're getting it. So I think we need to be careful about how we structure that because a lot of the economic incentives could 
could flow with that. Um, and that the person that's doing the grazing planning that's that's implementing that grazing plan, uh, you know, or or the crop plan if it's on cropping ground, uh, you know, I'd like to see it be structured so it's rewarding good management and not just flowing through to you know to somebody's pocket. I agree with you. Okay, I agree with you one hundred percent. And when I was working with CK through the first year of COVID in twenty twenty. And working with working with grassroots to try to develop their original contract. That's what I that that was a point that I brought up over and over and over and over again. I'm like, yeah, we're yeah, ownership has to sign this, but it's only through the creative management. It's only through good management that this that you're going to get this carbon in the soil, right? If the grass just sits there and there's not ruminants on it properly managed, it's probably not going to catch a whole lot of carbon that year. Yep. Okay. It's got to be managed. It can't just be owned and held. It has to be managed. And it's up to the skill of that manager over the long term on whether or not that ranch can sequester maximum carbon. And so you have a great point. All right. And I think that. I think these companies are going to like go back and look at your previous years of satellite data and see what that ranch looked like. Like if they go back 10 years and it was a pasture and they go back three years and it was plowed up and now you want to convert it back to grassland and get paid for the carbon on they're probably going to tell you, you know, there might be a company to tell you pack sand and there might be another one being like, Oh, you're right up our alley, sir. Come right over here. Yeah. I, and I think that's a danger it's going to happen. I'm sure it's going to happen. People are going to figure out a way to game the system. I'd hope that for the most part, the people, you know, the 80% that are in the meat of the bell curve that are getting in the carbon programs are going to be doing things the right way are going to be doing things right. And they're not going to be trying to game the system. I mean, there's ways to game the system after they do their initial measurement that I've kind of figured out stuff. I'm not going to talk about on the podcast because they don't want to tell all of my secrets to the whole world. <laughs> But, you know, there there are ways that that could probably be gamed a little bit. But more to the point, who, regardless of how anybody feels about, like, the money and economics, like, okay, that's a good revenue source. Carbon contracts are a great revenue source. I mean, they could be for the right operation, especially if there's a great revenue split between ownership and management. Like... That's something that's got to be, that's something I might have a conversation about before I start going talking to carbon companies. I might, I might have a conversation between ownership and management and be like, Hey, let's maybe go do one of these, but let's figure out how we're going to split this before we go talk to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, like going out and like purposely degrading a piece of land that you've owned for 20 years just so you can get a low baseline and then try to game the system for five years and get a high measurement. Did you actually store that carbon? If their measurements and their math say yes, you stored that many tons of carbon over the period. Maybe some companies aren't going to care on how you did it. They're just going to care that you did. So they have those credits to sell to Microsoft or to Meta or to, you know, Ford or United Airlines. 
Yeah. What probably makes more sense, and, and this is probably what it would actually do, is incentivize land purchases of degraded land, right? So, because I don't think anybody's going to actually potentially go out there and degrade their own land, but right. But if, but if maybe you were saying, hey, I could buy this pile of crap, put a carbon contract on it, put good management on it, and, and bring it back up. And, and maybe that's a good thing for, you know, for the, for everything, you know. What I'd yeah. like to see an economic case, a viable economic case for is for somebody to go buy an irrigation pivot in Western Kansas. That's currently doing corn, beans, feed, you know, something to, something to raise for cows standing in a feedlot. I'd like to see somebody take some of that ground, retire it from production agriculture, pull the pivot out, and put that back to grass and get the carbon payments on it. Mm-hmm. The first couple of years might not be real spectacular, but with with a good cover crop mix and ultra high density grazing, by year five, you could really, really be moving the needle fast, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It'll, it, it, yeah. It's, I think it's definitely going to be an industry changer and a disruptor. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of nuts and bolts to sort out. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So, um, so you're selling an airplane, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got my, uh, 52 Bonanza up for sale. And uh, it kind of hurts me to think about selling it. It's been a passion project here for the last four years. And, and uh, yeah, but it, it tell, tell everybody kind of about move. the story of this bonanza. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, if you guys are airplane nerds, if not uh, Google uh, uh, 52 C35 bonanza. So this is one of the old V tail, you know, they were termed the doctor killers is what everybody said. So, uh, me and a buddy went in and bought a bought a 1962 Cherokee together, and uh, we enjoyed flying that. Right, it was kind of our first airplane. We I, I owned half, he owned half, and we were hangered in the back row at our little airport. And uh, it's kind of the junk row hangers, right? And back in there is this old Bonanza, and it's got a layer of dust on it, an inch thick. And I'm you know sticking my head through the you know hangar door looking at it. And go back in there and kind of scope it out a little bit and sit in it. So I start tracking down the story of it. It was parked at our airport about 12 years before I, I finally got it. And uh, the guy who flew it in there had some trouble with it and said, I'll be back to get it. And and 12 years had gone by. So anyway, you can you can Google a, a tail number and find out who the ownership is. So it was owned by an LLC. And so I had to search with the Secretary of State to find out who the owner of the LLC was and finally found the guy called him up and said, Hey, I'd, what's the story in your airplane? Would you sell it to me? And anyway, it took about six months to a year and he finally agreed to sell it to me. And uh, so I got it bought for pretty much scrap prices and, uh, and then started going through the airplane and, and uh, we, me and, a, me and a buddy who knows more than I do and an AMP locally, uh, he, he helped us out and we got the thing airworthy again and got it flying. And, and I put about uh, 400 hours on the airplane in the, in the four years that I've owned it. And uh, yeah, put put a lot into it. It's been a been a fun project. So uh, anyway, I I just bought into a Baron uh, with another guy. Uh, I'm a I'm a 25 owner in this Baron now. So it's time tell to let us, the tell us what go. a Baron is. 
So a Baron's a twin engine uh, Bonanza. It's it, well, it's made by the same Beechcraft is the maker of both those. So a Baron is essentially the same airplane with two engines, a little bit bigger, uh, you know, seating area. So it's got six seats instead of four. And uh, for a lot of the work we do in ranching for profits, it's me and another instructor. Sometimes uh, if we're going to EL meetings, there's two or three or four of us in the airplane. And uh, and then, you know, the supplies for the school. So um, the Bonanza is really not enough to haul that. And, you know, so the Baron and yeah, of course, it's an excuse too to buy a cooler airplane, you know. So um, so the Baron will haul uh, four of us and, and luggage and supplies for a school and and uh, get us in there a little quicker, too. So. So anyway, I'm just stepping up and and uh, let letting the bonanza go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I want to know about the airplane you built this year too. Okay. Why don't you tell me about that? <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've got a pretty neat group of us here in Wheatland that are into into flying. So me and two other buddies um, went to an air show a couple years ago, and uh, there's a there's an aircraft company based out of Missouri called Zenith Aircraft, and and so we stopped by their booth and they showed us what they have. And we went to one of their build workshops. Um, so they make these really strange boxy looking things called uh, a, a CH750 Super Duty STOL, S-T-O-L, that stands for short takeoff and landing. So that's what we ended up buying. We ordered a kit, took about six months to get the kit. And, uh, and that came about two years ago now. And then we started putting our kit together. Um, one of our guys is a retired guy from the power plant here. He's a really handy, uh, he's a machinist. He's got, a, you know, a lathe and a mill and everything in his, in his shop there. So he was our main builder. Uh, so it took us about a year and a half to put the airplane together and uh, put an engine together on it, build the instrument panel, uh, you know, do all your plumbing for instruments and fuel systems and all those things. So, um, so yeah, we've been flying that since June of this year. And I uh, actually went and flew it this morning before I'm talking to you. So I uh, went, went out and went for a quick lap around and went and looked at some stuff. And so it's uh, it's a fun airplane. It's certainly not a speed demon. It goes about uh, 100 miles an hour is about its top speed. Uh, it's got big old balloon tires on the back. And uh, I can take off and land in about 200, 250 feet. Um, so it, uh, yeah, it gets off the ground pretty good. And it, it sure is fun to go out and buzz around. So <laughs> you can almost land in your backyard. I almost land. I, I can land in our backyard, but I, I just haven't yet. I'm afraid of falling into a badger hole. <laughs> <laughs> but you said it had big tires on it. You guys, must it, it, does. Badgers. it does. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little bit chicken too. So, <laughs> but, uh... so what did you take to Oshkosh? Did you take the Bonanza or did you take the Zenith? We took the Bonanza. So my daughter is a sophomore at University of North Dakota studying aviation. So she and I did a, a trip, father-daughter trip to Oshkosh this year. No, it's a it's a huge air show. Over half a million people come. Thousands of airplanes come. And uh, so we went there. We flew the Bonanza to uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Uh, camped, uh, set up a tent right there beside the airplane and uh, um yeah, had had a blast. Spent spent five days there. She and I and nerded out on airplanes and and uh, yeah, just had a great time. What was the coolest thing you saw at Oshkosh? Oh man, uh, the jetpacks were pretty cool. So these guys, you know, flying around on the jetpacks with the jet engines okay. on their arms that they're that they're doing. Um, 
Oh, they had a demonstration of T6s. Uh, if anybody doesn't know what a T6 is, the old Texan or Harvard or S&J is what they're often called. But they're, the they're World an War old, II Texans, not the World, World War II Texans. They were the trainer airplanes for the before they put the pilots and the Corsairs, the P-51s. They flew the, the T6s. And uh, they had an anniversary for the, the T6s this year. And they had a formation flight. I think there was 46 T6s in formation. Uh, that were buzzing over the field and T6s have an eight foot prop that breaks the sound barrier when it spins. So it makes a very interesting sound. That's just really cool. There's not much cooler than the sound of a T6. So um, I'm that impressed that there's still almost 50 of them flying. Oh man, there's a pile of them out there. Yeah. I actually got to ride in one this year, which was kind of a neat thing for me, but uh, a guy flew into our little airport here and I asked for a ride and he took me around. So they're, they're pretty incredible, but uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. So I, I love to, when I'm not thinking about ranching and thinking about this business, uh, I'm thinking about airplanes and playing with airplanes. So we, we, it's fun to have hobbies that are that you know give you some interest outside of uh, your profession so for me that's aviation <laughs> right on and that's one yeah. of the things you guys definitely talk about at the school that shall not be named is you know every once in a while it's good to have a hobby to get off the ranch and just take your head out of agriculture absolutely yeah you gotta you gotta have some things that are interest you outside of your of your professional life and especially for people as they're starting to go up in years in the business, right? It's really important to have your, to have something that's pulling you away from the business, right? To create opportunities for other people to come in behind you, right? If, if all you're doing is the ranch, 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 right? Who, who, how are you creating room for the next person to follow you? Right. So I, I think we really need to be intentional about, about creating interests and hobbies and things that are, that are off the ranch that are taking us away from it. Um, that, you know, creating some healthy separation too. And plus I, I find that when I'm, you know, out tinkering with airplanes and then I come back to the office, I'm better for my business, right? Then if I, if I just sat here all the time and all I did is ranching for profit stuff, right. I probably wouldn't be very fresh. I wouldn't have many fresh perspectives, but, you know, having things that, that take me away from the company, um, sometimes that's where your best ideas happen. Hey, that that's a great point. I made a note about succession transition. Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm a little froggy in my throat this morning. I made a little note about succession and transition. And I'm not sure where I want to go with that or if there's even anything there. Yeah, I, I don't know where to go with that. So we'll just do something else. Um, okay. I, I noticed a Tell couple more. Your recent articles about what to do with windfall profits, and I'll admit yeah. I haven't necessarily read them, but I can probably understand the gist. Calf prices are really high. There's going to be a lot of people that make a lot of money this year. So what's the strategy on how to protect yourself and, and, invest, the, and invest the windfall profits from, from whatever somebody might realize in the market this year? Yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm glad you brought this up because I've been, I've been trying to pound this drum quite a bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing uh, people get uh, total gross dollars for calves higher than we've, than they've ever gotten in the history of their ranching. Right. So uh, now not, let me pause it. Not everybody is having windfall profits this year. Right. So if you're sitting there going, 
well, crap, I'm having a terrible year, right? You're not the only one. <laughs> so, yeah. But but there, there are a lot of people in ag that are going to see their highest gross income from the farmer ranch that they've ever had in the history of the business this, this coming year. Um, so I'm, I'm starting to feel like I'm getting a little bit more gray hairs and a little longer in the tooth, right? Because I've, I've seen this before, right? We've, we've been down this road before when calf prices were super high. What was that? 14, I guess. Yep. And, and what I saw is the, the, the fallout from that in the subsequent years, many businesses actually created terrible problems with how they deployed the, those funds that they received back in, back in those good years. So I'm, I want to be out there sounding the alarm, telling people, let's not screw it up this time. Okay. So, so what I'm, what I'm telling folks is let's, let's use that money in ways that make the business stronger, uh, that, that, that make the business more resilient, um, you know, and, and that don't compound already bad problems in the business. Okay. So, so, so the main gist of that is a lot, a lot of the businesses that I work with, uh, that, that we work with through Ranching for Profit are asset rich and cash poor, right? Uh, wealthy on the balance sheet, broke at the bank. Okay. And, and a lot of that's because what we do when we have some money in our pocket is we deploy that money in things that don't produce cash flow. Okay. We, we buy more land. We buy machines that make our lives uh, more comfortable, but that don't actually produce cash flow in excess of their costs. Right. And, and when we get a little money in our pocket, we always, we, we tend to do those same things over and over and over again. So we compound that problem of being asset rich and cash poor. Okay. So one of the things I would really challenge people to do with that, with those funds is to create a, um, a essentially pool a pot of much more uh, liquid reserves, right? Money you can put your hands on with, with 10 days notice, right? So if, if you're sitting there and you're like, Hey, these, these animals are on sale, right? Great. I've got this pot of cash here that I can go out and, and grab that pot of cash and deploy it on those animals. And they're going to produce good cash flow, right? Three months from now, I'm selling those animals. And now that pot, that pool of money is bigger, right? So to, to create some reserves where, where you can be able to act when, when opportunities present themselves. Uh, one of the rule of thumb that, that we like to do is to, is to tell a business, uh, ask a business the question of, of what is your annual overheads for operating your business? Okay, C come to that that number. Um, I'll be a bit vulnerable here for for RMC. That number is five hundred thousand dollars a year, right? That that's that's what it costs me to keep the doors open at RMC. Okay, that's paying my staff that are on salary. That's paying the rent on my building, right? That's meeting some other obligations I have. Cost me five hundred thousand dollars. So once you have that number, so you know for a lot of ranches that number is somewhere between $200,000 and $800,000, right? That's probably your average size ranch. So once you have that number for you, then the question I want to ask is, okay, so what percent of that do you want to have on hand in terms of, of liquid reserves, right? Um, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, anyway, I just, just missed it. But money you can put your hand on quickly, right? Our recommendation is that should be at a minimum 50%. Okay, so so a business my size, five hundred thousand dollars of overheads, I should have two hundred fifty thousand dollars sitting there ready to go to work if I need it. Okay, okay. Uh, so for for a lot of farms and ranches, they're not anywhere near that. 
And, and so if, if you're not there and, and for some people that, that number's higher, we, we said our minimum number is 50%. Some people might say, I want it to be a hundred percent, right? I want to have a year's worth of overhead sitting in the bank. Good, good for you. I'm not going to, if, if that's where you want to be, knock, knock yourself out. But a lot of those, these places that we're working with are not there, right? They're, they're more sitting on 60 days, 90 days worth of, of capital that they can put their hands on quickly. So so my first use of profit, if I'm looking at a business like that is let's pay the damn tax on it and then build that reserve. Okay. And, and I think pay the damn tax on it is one of the things that causes people a lot of uncomfort, right? Because you could redeploy that money back into your business and not pay the tax on it, or you can pay the tax on it and then have after tax wealth that now you can do something with. Okay. And so, so my advice is on, for a lot of people, pay the damn tax on it and just build your cash reserves. There's a quote that's this like flashing neon in my head. Decisions made in the name of tax avoidance rarely have positive consequences. That That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. When you're, when you're making business strategy decisions in the name of a tax avoidance, it almost always comes by back to bite you in the butt. So Yeah. Let, if you know if if your business strategy aligns with with this, well, good, do it, right? But I think oftentimes people are making things of, oh, hey, I can buy this and not pay the tax on it, right? Well, ra- farms and ranches are full. If you fly airplanes, you know this because you get to fly over everybody's place and look down at them. <laughs> farms and ranches are full of monuments to tax avoidance, right? And you just go look in the back back of the buildings and you'll see them. <laughs> I, I'll admit to having more than one monument to tax avoidance on my ranch. I will admit to that. At least, at least I can admit that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so there's one thing to do. Um, I think with the money, um, I, I, another temptation is is to bring more mouths to the trough. Okay, um, and what I mean by that is we you you've been plugging along for the last several years, just barely scraping by. And here we hit this year and probably next year. And all of a sudden, cash flow is not a problem anymore. And the phone calls made to Junior. Hey, Junior, I know you've always wanted to come be a part of the farm and ranch. Now you can come home and bring your wife and your kids with you. And we've taken a ranch that's trying to support one family unit. And we've not scaled that ranch at all. And all of a sudden, we've put another family unit on it. And and now a year or two later, when prices are back to more normal levels, the ranch is not economically solvent anymore, right? Because we've got too many mouths to trough. So um, it, it's I, I'm not opposed to adding family members to the farmer ranch, but let's make those expectations clear. Hey, Junior, we'd love to have you come back. Uh, if we, we know that in order to support another family, this ranch needs to create another half a million dollars in revenue this coming year. Um, you know, we're able to, to support that for uh, without doing that for a year or two. But within two or three years, if this ranch, you know, hasn't moved from 1.5 million in gross revenue to 2 million in gross revenue, you're going to have to find something else to go do. Okay. I, I think those are fair expectations to lay out. But, but what we saw at the last cattle cycle peak was um, family living went up, a number of mouths at the table went up. And then when cattle prices and everything came back down, those numbers did not go back down. Those numbers stayed high. And now we've got a ran- ranches that are insolvent. I think people took on a lot of debt on the 2014 cattle cycle. You know, we had cows were 3,000, 3,500 bucks, kind of about where the top of it was. A lot of people took out 
took out low interest loans because money was still free and cheap in 2014, mm-hmm. took out low interest loans on overvalued animals. And, you know, here we are nine years later, all that inventory is cycling out. Like there's very few cows that were bought on the last high that are still walking around vertical on their own feet. That's right. And how many operators, like how many of us Dallas have seen this more than once? How many of us have seen this twice? How many of us have seen this three times? Like it, it seems like there's new, a lot of new folks in the business that have come into the business since 2014. And it's kind of like with drought, right? I mean, the drought cycles, the cattle cycles, they're very closely, they're very closely linked And one effect. You know, the drought cycle definitely affects cattle prices. It's like, you know, I watch guys that haven't been through two or three droughts. Like you should have destocked a year ago, pal. You know, I guess you'll just have to figure that out. Yeah. So there's an advantage there's definitely an advantage to having seen it before at least once, if not two or three times and understanding how this thing might shake out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think if, if you start telling yourself, well, we're at a new high, we're going to be here, uh, you know, in perpetuity, just go ahead and smack yourself in the face. Right. I mean, th- this, you know, one thing you know about being in the livestock business drought, market swings, market will go up, markets will go down. And and there's actually oftentimes more opportunities in, in periods of drought and in periods of low prices than there are opportunities when you're getting rain and when prices are high, right? Oftentimes when when you're getting rain and prices are high, there's there's much more limited opportunities. Um, when when we're in drought and prices are low, that, that's when the opportunities present. So that's when I bought cows, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> it got a little drier that got a little cheaper but now they're worth an, an awful lot it's going to be awful hard for me to want to keep them in inventory with the cost of feed and the cost of feeding yeah but, you know we yeah. talked about that earlier yeah. and uh so one of my clients is another good ranching for profit graduate so i can't like i can't i i can't fool him not, not that I say that I fool any of my other clients, but like, you know, he's like, well, what's this? What's this? What's this? Like, well, that's this, this, and this. Okay. Will you put feed out for me? Yes. I will deliver your feed, but understand there's going to be delivery charge. Okay. That's fair. So we get down, you know, he sends up two loads of hay and I figure what I got in it for pickup time and man hours. I'm like, okay. So I made 33 trips to deliver two bales each trip. Each one of those trips was probably an hour of my time and an hour of the pickup. That's mm-hmm. another hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that's something like, it's not just the cost of feed. I mean, alfalfa, we talked about that earlier. It's really expensive. I imagine feed hay on anywhere in the country is going to be two fifty, three hundred or higher. Um, then the cost of feeding, you know, go, go buy a new feed truck today. Or go buy a new truck that you're going to put a bale bed on or, or a cake box on. Like, if you want a new, if you want a 2023 or 2024 truck, you better take at least $60,000 to the dealership to buy a stripped down base model truck. 
I was going to say, I don't think that number is going to get it anymore. I think you're probably going to have to add another 20 to that. Yeah. <laughs> Just absolutely insane. I mean, I, I look at, I bought a, I bought a wore out feed truck. You're like, you've heard about like rehabilitating rescue animals. Like I had to rehabilitate a rescue mega cab. <laughs> it was, I'm not going to say I would have been better off buying a new truck, but it would have been close. Yeah. Now I've got yeah. something that doesn't, that's not a rolling computer. It's, it's, it's pre all of that extra, extra computer stuff. Yeah. I'm giving up a little bit in terms of fuel economy and performance, but I wanted to get something that would at least have a chance of running after the big EMP hits, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> going buying anything new these days so like i just got rid of uh my john deere gator side by side only a couple years old i know what i paid for it when i got it four years ago i know what a new one costs now like you can't tell me that in four years they've increased their price 50 percent and made that and it's that much better of a unit yeah i don't think so i don't think so and you know i haven't been on haven't been on Chevy Ford or Ram lately to kind of, you know, price out what one tons are, but I imagine, you know, 60 grand for a stripped down base model truck with a diesel. You might be lucky. You might yeah. be lucky to get one of those. And it might be more like 70 or 75 by the time that, you know, by the time this comes out in like two weeks, it could go up. Right. Um, so, you know, and, and there ain't anything getting any cheaper at John Deere. They're, Diesel fuel, and we just need to accept diesel fuel is going to be four dollars, and that's that's what it's going to be, and that's the floor that that could be the new floor. So even though we're having, even though we're looking at you know three, four, or five thousand dollar cows, and calves are getting close to three bucks, record windfall profits. You need to you need to stop, turn around, look at those overheads, and look at the money you're spending because there's a hell of a lot more going out per unit of production in 2023 than there was in 2020 or 2021 yeah yeah that that's absolutely right you you look at the here's an interesting number for you so back back up a couple years ago let's say 1500 cal okay uh and interest rate was maybe what five percent okay okay so uh 1500 cal on a on a five percent interest 1500 times 0.05 should be able to do that in my head, right? $75. Okay. So your cost of capital to own that cow for a year was $75. Okay. And again, I don't care if it's the bank money or your money, right? You, if, you, if you've got $1,500 tied up in there, you probably could have made 5% on that money somewhere else, right? There's, there's opportunity but, cost as well. Sure. So we'll, we'll just call it cost of capital was $75 on that cow a couple years ago. Uh, let's take today's cow. What were we talking? 28, 2,500. Let's call it 2,800. That's probably what it's going to be when this episode comes out. And cost of capital in her, I would say probably a lot of guys are looking at 9%. I'd, on, I'd say 9% is fair. Okay. So 2,800 times 0. 0.09, $252 is the cost of capital in that cow for the coming year. That's and that's before feed cost. That's before any feed cost. That's before any overheads. That's just cost of capital. So you're the value of your money tied up in that cow to stand there next year is two hundred and fifty-two dollars. Okay, up from seventy-five dollars two years ago. So, yeah, 
<laughs> Those are numbers a lot of people don't like, Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you get so many Christmas cards is because you tell people things like that. Oh man. Yeah. You know, and, and people, I, I'm hearing a lot of people say, well, it's, it's, you can't buy anything in this market and, you know, you just need to be out of livestock ownership. And I don't think that's true. There there's opportunities to buy things. Um, I, I would be cautious saying, go buy something that's going to be in the herd four or five years from now. Right. I don't think that's smart uh, because probably in two years, you're going to be able to buy it for half of what it's worth today. Right. Uh, but, but I think there are opportunities to buy things that you're going to sell in fairly short, short order. Right. And especially things you can move up in value and move up in class. Right. So there, there's, there's deals out there to be had. Um, but, but you better be a pretty savvy operator. I think hindsight being 2020, 12 months ago, I mean, and, and this is for my area. I, I, I get things might've been different outside of my little bubble. 12 months ago was the time to, to get all your old stock out of your herd and to buy new young stock that you could afford to feed and keep over the winter. I know some guys that actually did that, that, that got rid of a lot of their older stuff last year, kind of toward the end of the year. Cause they didn't want to feed, you know, they weren't, they just didn't want to feed eight, nine, 10 year old cows over the winter cycled them out. Bought younger stuff, bought party girls, bought yearling heifers, whatever. Fed them over the winter, turned bulls out on them. You know, what's that animal worth now versus what yeah. they paid for it a year ago? What right. would that cow that they sold last year, what would she be worth now? She wouldn't yeah. be worth, a, like, she'd be worth roughly the same because we're talking, you know, eight, nine, 10 year old depreciated out commercial cows. Yeah. They're worth what they're worth. I mean, they're worth, yeah. well, they're worth what a Corriente is worth, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that, boy, that would have been a home run, wouldn't it? I mean, if all, all we had was was 2020 hindsight. But but yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be opportunities like that in this coming year as well. You know, to, you know, you know, I don't think you can bank on another jump like we've had, but but I think, you know, you can say, okay, what what can I buy this year that I can add value to? You know, that I'll be ready to market them three months, six months, maybe even nine months from now, you know, that I'll that I'll be ready to have a package to sell. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, the trick is just being able to being able to see an opportunity when it's in front of you. Like that's that's something I struggle with is I'll have an opportunity come up and slap me in the face and I'll go, oh, what was that? You know, and, and being okay with not getting them right too. I think that's something where, you know, every now and then we, we all make bets and we get burned on it. And if you spend all your time stewing on getting burned, well, just going to cripple you for the next one. Just, just take your lesson, pay your tuition and move forward. Right. Let, let's go. Let's, yeah. let's look for the next one. You know, don't be upset. You took a loss. Yeah. Sometimes it's the cost of an education or it's the cost of doing business. It's a learning experience. That's all right. the knowledge that I have. It, it, it wasn't free. I mean, yeah. I, I paid for it somehow. Yeah. You pay to sit in ranching for profit for a week. You pay to participate in EL. I pay to go to conferences. I pay yeah. to I buy audiobooks and listen to them. All the knowledge we get, it's all paid for. Yep. No some what. of the most expensive knowledge you, you get are those times when you go out and you put some money down on something and you go, don't. <laughs> 
Let's just say I had a learning experience with John Deere Gators, and I'll never buy another one. <laughs> oh man! Yikes! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well good stuff what do you uh how do we want to end this yeah um i guess i'd I'd like to talk about uh you know professional improvement beyond ranching for profit let's let's talk about other things that people could do um to to push themselves to challenge themselves to get themselves thinking bigger um, and I'm not doing this to, to put people in the seats of the school. Um, I let, let's think about things other than ranching for profit, other than executive link. Um, what, what's some things I know, Brian, you like to go to some things. What are, what are some things you went to this year that you, that you felt really rang the bell for you? Um, I didn't get out as much as near as much as I would have liked this year. Um, you know, up until, up until the first part of June, I was, it was just dry. Like I couldn't. I, I was just mentally messed up. Uh, in fact, it was uh, middle of April, like Easter weekend. We were over at the in-laws for Easter weekend. And uh, my soon-to-be sister-in-law, they, they get married in like two weeks. My soon-to-be sister-in-law was like, well, you know, I'm not working at you know my old job. I'm just doing this, this, and this and helping out at the restaurant. If you guys want to go away for a few days, you know, I can come watch your chickens. And Tanya and I talked on the drive home and that night we had a plan nice. and then we started calling and we were like, Hey, can you come watch our stuff? Can you come watch our stuff? It was Tuesday afternoon. We found, we got commitments that, you know, for people to come take care of the house and people to watch the cows Wednesday morning, we planned the trip and we left Thursday. <laughs> nice. Outstanding. Outstanding. Good for you. We had to go uh, down to, uh, we went down to, um, ah, dang it. Broken Bow, Oklahoma, down in Southeast Oklahoma. Okay. Yeah. If you've never been down there, Big D, that's like, it's, it's a cool place. It's a, it's a really nice place. So we rented an Airbnb cabin that slept 11 people for just the two nice. of us. Of course, that, nice. makes, that makes sense. But it was like a tree house up on stilts right next to a river. Oh, cool. And when you haven't seen running water or rain for like since July, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go sit by a river and watch the water go by and drink coffee for two days. So nice. that's what we did. And it was amazing nice. for my mental health. Good. Good for you guys. So it as but as far as like conferences, education goes, I've been slacking this year. I really yeah. have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we did something this year that, that, uh, I've been wanting to do for a while and never felt like I could bite the bullet and did it. We finally did it. Um, we went to the Ramsey, uh, entree leadership summit. And so Jordan and I went, um, from RMC here and is, then is there was about a Dave Ramsey, Dave Ramsey. Yep. Okay. There, there was about a half dozen ranching for profit alumni folks that we ended up meeting there. Um, and, uh, that was, that was really fun. It's a, is a big event in Nashville. Um, there was, you know, top of the line speakers. We got to hear Jordan Peterson. We got to hear Malcolm Gladwell. We got to hear Patrick Lencioni, of course, Dave, uh, a lot of the personalities that Dave has on his program were there. It was incredible. There was like 3000 people at, at the meeting and, uh, it was just really charged us up, you know, got us thinking. And I think one of the big thing was, is just being away and, and having time to talk about, you know, business strategy stuff and, 
you know, some of those things, that was a, that was a big shot in the arm for us. So, um, you know, the price point of it is a little choking for farmers and ranchers to, to, to think about doing that. Cause you were not used to investing in ourselves and I'm frugal just like anybody else. Right. So that was a, a challenging thing for us. There was a lady, there was three different, um, price points of seats. So we were in the cheap seats, which to me were really, I think we were paid $4,000 a ticket to be there is what, what we were. Yeah. So ours were the cheap seats. The next one's up for $6,000 and the next one's up for $8,000 a seat. Right. And uh, there was a lady who stood up in the front seats and she said, Hey, I'm so excited. We brought our whole team here and like 15 people stood up in the front seats. Right. And so Jordan and I are sitting there running the math, right? How <laughs> much did they pay to be here for this whole week? Right. She had more than a quarter million dollars invested in taking her team to that for the week. And you're right. And and that probably I bet they went and did other stuff too while they were there, right? I bet the cost didn't in there. Um, but it, it was just amazing to me how, you know, what some really successful businesses are willing to invest in their people and their teams to to move them forward. The the cool thing about that conference was it's mostly blue collar type of people, right? So it's mostly the trades, um, you know, so a lot of construction, a lot of electrical, plumbing. Um, you know, there's there a lot of real estate agents go there, but it's mostly, you know, the trades with kind of, you know, the Christian conservative mindset, um, that are there. So it was, it was kind of our people, right. That were, that were there at a continuing education event, um, to, to dive in and boy, it was cool. So that, that was a big thing for us and something that kind of pushed us, but I'm, I'm glad we did it. I, th- that's probably not in the budget for every year, but I bet every third year we're going to look for something like on that caliber. So very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I have, um, I mean, I don't have any schools necessarily on the schedule, but, uh, you know, like, like we talked last week when, when we had our, at our visit and then, and that email chain, I'm trying to be on the road quite a bit next year. And I, I guess I don't have to talk about it super broadly. Um, for those of you listening, like, I'm going to try to make uh, the four-star expo. So that's going to be Wichita Falls, McCook, Kansas, uh, which will be in Hutchison, and back to Torrington, Wyoming next year. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to do Soil Health U. I'm going to try to do No-Till on the Plains. I'm going to try to do High Plains No-Till, Bottom Line Conference. Uh, man, I'm forgetting a few. I'm going to try to get to RCAF this year up in Deadwood. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. Yeah, there's there's a couple others that I have on my calendar on my schedule that I don't like I don't have here. But uh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get out and not just not just get out and meet fans and 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 connect with fans at these locations, but I need to get out and I need to get some more knowledge in my head, you know. Yeah. I need to get yeah. out and get some of that continuing education and get off the ranch a little more. And like I said, it was just it was just really, really difficult for me the first part of this year to think about anything, but how dry it was and how, and how poor the range condition was. Normally we're starting to see a little bit of green about 15th of April. If I make it to the 8th of May and it's not green, like that was the latest I've ever seen it. And I was at the 28th, like 28th of May, we got a little bit of rain and it was the first rain we'd had since August the year before. And that made a little green start and I had a little bit of hope and, you know, we, we had a good, we had a fairly wet last week of May and into June and July. 
and then you get down to the first of August and it's like, okay, now what do I do with all this grass? I should have four times the cows. Yeah. But if I would have asked for four times the cows, they couldn't have made it through May. Like yeah. I, I would not have been able to get, get all the cows that I needed to get to, to eat the grass that I would have, because it just didn't have it in the first of the year. So, you know, it, taking a breath, taking a reset. And I look at all this forage that I've grown, like, okay, now what do I do with it? Well, I haven't been able to graze it. Maybe I need to plan to light it on fire. Hmm. Hmm. So there's, uh, one of our, one of my neighbors. So you've been here, you, you've seen the ranch. Mm-hmm. You kind of know how I'm broken up in the, in the thirds. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the, be the Northeast part of the ranch. We're planning on one of the neighbors is kind of like, spearheading the deal so he's got he leases two different pieces total about three thousand acres kind of in the north middle of this big block that's eighteen thousand acres Hmm. the north side of it is mostly farm fields and a river the east side is a county road the west Hmm. side is a county blacktop road the south side is the highway eighteen and a half thousand acres and we want to light all of it on fire so you've got some nice fire buffers there to let her let her fly. Yeah. Yeah. There's only a couple, there's only like about 400 yards on the north end, just little patches in between these fields that we got to worry about. Other than that, it's, it's, it's all in feed right now, which means we get back to April, uh, March, April, there ain't going to be anything to burn in those fields. And I could just throw a head fire right on those fields and not worry about it. Yeah. So, we're waiting on one landowner, right? Cousins, they're in the northeast corner of the of of the whole unit that we want to do. They've got like forty four hundred acres of grass up there. Like, maybe we'll burn around you a little bit if you don't. If you're not comfortable burning the whole thing, I'll leave you a chunk of grass so you can get you know at least get your cows till back to June or July when the rest of it starts growing. But yeah, it's there's a big pocket in there. There's a lot of cedars kind of right in the middle of this thing. You know, and it'd just be so easy. I mean, yeah. yeah, we could just do Adam's part. It'd take the same amount of time. It'd take the same amount of guys. It'd just be a little bit easier prep work. Yeah. Could I burn it without without my cousins up there in the corner? Yeah. It'll still take the same amount of time. Yeah. Probably take about the same amount of dudes and be a little bit different prep. Yeah. Doing the whole 18,500 acres. That's easy. I can yeah. do that with, I can do that with a pretty, I have the crew to do that, but if yeah. we got to start cutting corners out of it and doing weird things that just starts amplifying problems. So that's, that's what's on what, my big radar right now. Is, what time, what time of year is the right time for you guys to burn? Um, right. Okay. <laughs> right time of year for what? Yeah. Um, if I was wanting to maximize warm season production and carbon capture, um, I would say maybe sometime around the 1st of July, 1st to the 15th of July to burn. Mm-hmm. So you've got your summer growth already started. You're, you know, you're definitely in the meat of warm season growing and you're not going to hurt the growing plants like 80, 90 degree day with some humidity. You're not going to hurt the growing plants. You're just going to burn off the understory just the old decadent crap right any carbon you lose from burning 
is recaptured within a hundred a hundred growing days, not a hundred days, but a hundred growing days. Your plants recapture the carbon lost from a burn, and you know then there's forage production benefits. The year of the burn, if you're properly managed for the next two to three years, is increased forage production. Well, if there's more grass growing above ground, there's more root mass below ground, and if there's more root mass. There's more root exudates. There's more organic matter, which means mm-hmm. there's more carbon. Yeah. Um, so burning, I, I feel like burning in the growing season, early growing season, I think that's going to have the most benefit towards the grass and towards the carbon. Um, primary goal of this one is going to be to kill a bunch of trees. And to do okay. that, we need to burn in the dormant season where we can have a real hot fire. Not quite as good for the grass, I don't think. But we're going to kill the trees. And that's yeah. what we're really going for is, is we got to get rid of some of the trees and we want to get rid of the trees well before um, well before the grazing season. So we're not trying to plan burns during the growing season around where people have cattle. I see. So do you push it back to like February or do you go ahead and do it here in the fall or when, when's your... Um, when's your- window for that okay so good question we can talk a little bit about like dormant season timing um i'm not quite to my i'm not quite to dormancy yet i'll just throw a dart at the calendar and say that's going to happen november 15 so that would be the the earliest i would possibly consider doing a dormant season burn but there's no way i'd want to do it like that early It, it doesn't really matter when you burn in the dormant season like for the for the plants what matters if you burn in, in November, December is you're going to have bare soil until you have green grass. Yeah. And it, it, that's, that's the same whether you burn on December 15th or whether you burn on April 1st. Yeah. You're going to have bare soil in, until you have moisture and growing season days and growing season. So days. it's better to push it back as far as you can closer to the green up so you're not, not having that bare soil for as long. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 100%. And yeah. for me, that looks like third week of March to the second week of April is okay. Is kind of what I'd like to target, like thirty-five years of weather and thirty-five years of burning. Um, I can look at that third week of March. Probably seven out of ten years, that third week of March, there's a good day to burn in there, okay. and it's usually some of the best burns we've had have been. Between that third week of April and the second or the third week of March and the second week of April have been the most successful burns that we've had. We've also had some like some horrible, bad escape fires, during <laughs> escape yeah. fires and wildfires during that time of year. So, you know, it, it has its challenges. And, you know, I think some of the worry this year is with the amount of grass that we've grown in this area is, is wildfire danger. I was just talking to a guy yesterday. And he was, he was starting to get concerned about wildfire danger. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be a long winter. I just hope it's wet. Mm-hmm. Well, half inch of rain we got yesterday. That sure helped. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. Good for you guys. Cool. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Get some, get some fires going for you. Be ready to roll next spring. huh? Yeah. I don't know how yeah. much of a big deal I'm going to make out of that. Like yeah. I probably need somewhere between a hundred and 150 people to do that. Mm at least 30, at least 30 trucks. So we're going to, it's going to be, um, 
well, 18 and a half thousand acres. It's, you know, five miles by five miles by five miles by five miles almost. Yeah. And so I'm going to have to have like, gonna. my plan would be to set up in the middle on a tall hill with radios and binoculars. Uh, yeah. And have somebody on the north end I trust to run that crew, have somebody on each flank that I trust to run those crews and have somebody down on the head fire side that'll wait until I tell them to light the head fire. And as long as I can just talk to those four people and they can deal with their teams, you know, I can just focus on the big picture in the middle and go where I'm needed to go. You know? There you go. I'm yeah. gonna, I might even try to uh, use some of my contacts at the nature conservancy. Cause I know that they have, they hire people like to go out and burn stuff. Like they have people like on the year round payroll that are prescribed fire practitioners. So maybe I could, maybe I could get like a huge manpower drop or manpower uh, influx from nature conservancy or somebody else. Yeah. We'll figure it out. We'll get it done. We've only got like months to plan it. So. All right. <laughs> cool. Well, maybe I'll run into you at some of these uh, meetings here over the next year. I haven't gotten any of those minutes you mentioned. I haven't gotten any advice from those to, to be on the, on the speakers panel yet, but maybe some will come. So maybe some yeah. will come. I, I hope I get to see you again. I mean, if not, you're just yeah. going to make me sign back up for EL and come back. To the program. <laughs> there you go. I guess if that's it's, what I got to do. That's what I got to do. Oh man, EL's EL's thriving. We got a uh, uh, Andrew Morris is is hired on as our EL program coordinator, and uh, he's he's an alumni of the program. Was involved in it for quite some time, and and it's really exciting to have him leading it now. Because man, he's he believes in the program and is uh, really really driving it. So that's it's been fun. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So. Um, I guess as we, as we kind of wrap up here, you said that you don't, you're not having trouble filling schools right now. The next few are, are pretty much full. Uh, we got a few seats left this winter. Uh, if people want to come this winter, uh, Colorado Springs has some seats. Um, Rapid city, I think has like 10 seats left in it. Um, Cheyenne has, a, has a few seats left in it. Um, so yeah, if people want to come to those, we'd, we'd love to have them come. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but uh, if you don't want to come, somebody else will come in your spot, and you can skip out till next year. <laughs> That's great. All right, yeah. where uh, where can folks find you? Find more about RMC. Find more about Ranching for Profit. We'll hit that dinger one more time. Time. Ting. <laughs> uh, just go on our website, ranch ranchmanagement.com. Um, you know, follow our Facebook page. Go to our youtube channel all those kind of things that are going on so uh yeah I, we we do send out a email twice a month uh you can go to our website and drop your email in the little bot that pops up there uh, you'll be subscribed to our newsletter profit tips so uh some of these things brian and i were talking about are things that have been in the recent profit tips articles so um lo- love to have you subscribe to that if you're not already all right i i still subscribe to profit tips i read them every once in a while yeah yeah <laughs> you, you you open it up and look who the author is and if it's dallas you go oh geez i've heard that guy and you go on to the next one <laughs> but dave it's like oh maybe dave has something useful to say this week yeah yeah he usually <laughs> does yeah. there's an interesting one coming out uh shannon sims wrote it it's gonna hit here next week and it's it's about the definition of wealth and really what do we think of you know because kind of building on this idea of, of profits right and and going deeper into that, feeling that onion back a bit more. So he's he's diving in with that. It's going to be a good one. So. 
All right. Well, I'll make sure I'm signed up so I don't miss that one next week. Okay. Cool. Hey, thanks for your time today, Dallas. You bet, Brian. Always fun to catch up with you. You take care. Yep. Appreciate you. See ya. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.